50 cent Curtis, 50 cent Jackson in <laughs> the frozen ground. <laughs> he actually, for once cage, uh, one of cages co-stars out, out hairs cage. Hair, yeah. His hair <laughs> deals the screen. It was extremely distracting. Like he wasn't on screen for very long, but every time he was, I was like, why with the hair? <laughs> he does. He looks like cat Williams, right? He does. <laughs> I, I just watched, uh, uh, Jackie Brown for the mm. first time since high school. Mm -hmm. Do you remember Samuel Jackson's yeah. hair in that yes. movie? <laughs> yes. One of the all-time greatest like cinematic hairs, I think. <laughs> it's such a look. Okay. Yeah, that and Pulp Fiction. I don't know if Samuel L. Jackson's hair will ever be better than it was in the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> shit. Those were two amazing looks. And then he went the complete opposite direction with Nick Fury. No hair. No hair. So he's truly a man of many, of many do a, talents. Do a podcast about that. <laughs> Three, two, one. Welcome to a podcast about Samuel L. Jackson's hairstyles yes. through the years. <laughs> Jackson cast. I, I was talking with my friend today. I, we talk about this a lot, but you and I, but uh, who else to do uh, that you could do a podcast like this about? And Samuel L. Jackson was a contender. He, he's got some... He's got some strong films. Yeah, he really does. And he's been some in some weird, weird shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, been thinking about him a lot. Uh, since John Wick 3 is back in uh, the public consciousness, I've been thinking a Keanu cast that's, would be really good. That's really like top of my list. Yeah. I, um, I, I mean, think in three years when we finally catch yeah. up with Cage, we should start. Yeah, Keanu, Keanu is, just, might be the next frontier. We should just start a whole podcast uh, network where we just get like where we just get people to do like actor casts yes and as we, like and, and we just like have a new series going sometimes it really does feel like we're doing some sort of weird research i mean just research for for the public good i don't know what public but <laughs> uh, i like to imagine the um just doc just going through and actually just thinking about all the movies in someone's repertoire is uh yeah like how many actors get get that done like i feel like Part of the craft is you just do a thing, and then some of it's some of it stays in the it's public true. conscious if you're it's lucky. True. But a lot of it but just lot sort of, of right. sinks away. Right. And today is uh, a perfect example of a film that uh, really just, it, just it disappeared. It didn't just disappear. I feel like it never arrived. Yeah. Well, so like this was a total non-starter. Yeah, and and this is direct to video on demand and direct to DVD. Like another another one, and uh, opened in only a couple of theaters. I think this. What was the last one that we did? Uh, that was like that. I mean, Trespass was like that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, um, what's the one I'm thinking of? Uh, stolen. Was it stolen? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah this is the, this part of Cage's career for sure. But the most interesting thing to me about uh, this movie that I experienced was was watching Cage's interviews um, because they're really interesting around this. And one of the things he says is he's like. He says that uh, video on demand, he's like pe people, he's like the industry needs to get over this idea of video on demand as a failure, as just a mark of failure, because it's really the future. And like with a film like this or stolen or whatever, you, you know, it would be tempting to be like, yeah, okay, buddy. But like he was right. Like video, yeah. I feel, he, and he, he lays it out in this, he's like for films of a certain budget and uh, th films that, try to accomplish a certain thing that's not a blockbuster or something big like video on demand really makes a lot more sense and i, I mean was, it really makes sense for almost it seems increasingly nowadays anything that isn't a sequel or a franchise yeah. installment or a reboot seems to be best served by just going straight to streaming right and and a lot of people you know they have like theaters set up in their home basically i, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people like but you know big tvs are common good right. sound systems are common and something like this like it does make sense now as we record from my home theater right, right. <laughs> now uh, a, a movie night based around a movie like this uh sounds like a real bummer to me um because 
this it's movie was uh, a, really a, a bummer, bummer among a huge other bummer. things. Not only was the subject matter a bummer, but it was not a good movie, which it's makes not. it a double bummer because why did I watch a bad movie about <laughs> the most depressing subject matter possible? I mean, like... Yeah, I did a lot of research into, like, why this movie... Why about Good, because I did a lot of research into the actual real-life yes. story, which... Um, so, yeah, yeah. you will you not edify great. me about that because... Like I knew about, let's talk about the movie. Okay. And then I actually plan at the end of the episode, I'll do like a little recap okay. of, of the, of the true life case. All right. Um, well, so the, yeah. the overview is, and I, I knew about this uh, story from just being a teenager who was interested in serial killers. See, as, I didn't, I had yeah. no idea that this, this ever happened. So yeah. Then this, there was a guy named Robert Hansen who was, I think he was around the same time as the green river killer and some of his crimes got confused with his and, uh, but he, he was in Alaska. He would kidnap girls, mostly sex workers. And, and then, yeah, he would basically fly them in his bush plane right. to like the wilds of Alaska. Chain, chain them up. Yeah. Chain them up. Torture them, to, rape yeah, them. Right. And then, but I mean, sort of the, the, I don't want to say novel thing, but the thing that, you know, he, he would like take them out in his like prop plane and then like release them in the woods and hunt them like animals. You know, so there you have a just a terrifying story that has a lot of meat on it. I guess you should, in terms of like, just being it. It it is an inherently dramatic, terrifying thing, and and also there there was a drama. You know, a lot of drama around just catching this guy because he was like in the small Alaskan town where he lived. Like he was just seen as an upstanding citizen he, and nobody he was, wanted to do anything. Yeah. About he it. was like the neighborhood baker yeah. basically. So he was like well known in his community. He had a wife and two or three kids and he, uh, yeah, I mean he was, he was just a nice guy that everyone yep. liked. <laughs> yeah. So all of that is inherently exciting, uh, or dramatic. Um, dramatic. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a book called butcher baker that maybe was, Written by Glenn Flos, I believe his name is something like that. The who was the Alaskan State Trooper that Cage's that Cage character plays. is based on? Yeah, yeah. is either written by him or like in written with him. So okay, enter a young Kiwi uh, upstart filmmaker named Scott Walker. You know, it's interesting that after decades as a professional and successful <laughs> musician, know. that experimental uh, musician Scott Walker would decide to direct a feature film. <laughs> I know. Scott Walker, not that one. <laughs> My first note. <laughs> um, yeah. But how funny would it be if, if the, this was like, his passion project? If like Scott Walker and Cage were on like a press junket together oh for this God. movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry to the director, Scott Walker. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you get this a lot, but so it's Scott, funny. It'll never not be funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Scott Walker, this Scott Walker, um, has only made one feature film and that was this film. He worked in advertising. He He had a lot of money and it sounded like success in the advertising field. And he, and he left it all behind for VOD. He did. He literally did. He was like, I need to do this. He, he was taking like, he seems like a really nice guy. He's been taking a lot of screenwriting classes, like in his spare time, <laughs> like legit. At least ta he talks about this in the interviews I watched. He, he's been reading the screen books. He, he's in this interview with this one guy who's like, He's like, oh, so yeah, you were reading all the books like, you know, Save the Cat. Save the Cat, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, the, and the guy was like, yeah, and once you start filming, uh, it, then you have to throw all that stuff away, right? And Scott Walker was like, no, no, <laughs> I study those like the Bible, like serious. And he did like, he, he, he was like, yeah, we were really successful and my uh, money manager or whatever, all, all those people were like, you're crazy. Don't stop doing that to make film. But I had to do it. And all the interviews that I watched of him were from the press junket for this film. So he's very hopeful. I don't know how he feels about that decision now because this was the only film he's ever made and uh, yeah, it didn't really work out. Yeah, and, and it's funny because the movie does often... Let me say this. The movie is well made. You think so? I think from like a technical standpoint... It is average. Yes. Which yeah, is, I'd say it's thoroughly right, average. Right, which is good for someone's first feature. Right. Especially, you know, one with this budget featuring mm -hmm. the caliber of actors that he was working with um, and all, uh, you know, everything that it was riding on. 
he did a competent job. Yeah. But the movie is just so flat yes. that it it reeks to me of someone that was like exactly what you said. Oh, this is how you're supposed to make yes. a movie. Yes. So I think that's a factor. And then there's two other factors that I want to put in that I feel like really contributed to the, the end product. John Cusack's glasses. <laughs> that That's a high point. I like, I like that look. His like Buddy Holly look. Um, okay. The other thing is that this story... I think he I think he read the book. I think he read Butcher Baker and he's like, "Whoa, this is a this is a movie." <laughs> and um he's like, "To do this right though, I have to talk to the people involved." And he was really involved with uh, I forget her name, but the woman who Vanessa Hudgens plays, right, the, right, and we really involved with her, involved involved with pretty much everyone besides Robert Hansen. Um, talking to the families and he's like, this is going to be a film that does from a, the victim's perspective that does justice to this I, story. I don't want anybody to be offended, I think. And that's noble. And you, you should that. Yes, that, that I completely respect that tack. But the thing is that Scott Walker is, doesn't seem like an artist. No. He doesn't because he doesn't w with that respectful distance. He, he doesn't actually have anything, any angle on it. He doesn't have anything to say. There are times when it doesn't feel respectful, where it's like, where it really feels like it's slipping into exploitation or something. Extremely. But, like but all not the, on purpose. Right, but all the scenes in the strip club, yeah. to me, just reeked of like, you clearly have never spoken to a dancer. No. You don't know where they're coming from. No. You know, and just the way that like, they were just, you know, drug addicted, like out of control. Yep. You know, it, it's just like really the whole thing was like a, it was like a bad version of striptease. Well, striptease oh, well. was a bad version of striptease, <laughs> yeah. but, <laughs> but, but, you know, my I, point being like the scenes in the club to me were like really. No, it's not real. Yeah. It's not grounded. Exactly. In, yeah. And the same thing with all the stuff with 50 cents, character, <laughs> Curtis 50 Cent Jackson. Who, who is a, one of the producers on this movie? Oh boy. Did you know that? No. Top billing is a producer as Curtis Jackson wow. though. So it's easy to not make the connection. But yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, his character is just the most. And he's only in like three scenes. Three scenes. And he's the most stereotypical, like black he's pimp. He's the one black person in the movie. And he's like, you know, it's just, it's not good. And the way that everything around Vanessa Hudgens' character, which plays out, doesn't, it feels not only exploitative, but like fantasy. Like yeah, it's, and, it, and which is weird because he was clearly talking to that woman. So I don't know. I, it doesn't, the, the thing is, is that he doesn't commit. Because yeah, right, exactly. it's, it's, it's as if he wanted to make a movie about this woman's personal trauma yes. and and the way that she dealt with it and you know who she became after the fact and how hard that was for her like it could be it could be like a character sketch yes. of you know someone who's, who's right if some, he had a point of view right but then it gets bogged down in all this weird law and order kind of yeah i mean law and order is in like produced by dick wolf law and order not like the concept of law and order <laughs> right. but like it like it gets bogged down in this law and order like procedural thing where you're right. just like you know and especially considering cage's part is blah cage's mm -hmm. acting is blah everything about cage in this movie to me was blah like he got mm -hmm. outshone by both cusack and vanessa and hudgens. vanessa hudgens who Vanessa Hudgens was the MVP of this movie, yeah. if you want my opinion. And yeah. he even got outshined by Uncle Hank, <laughs> who like didn't even have that many scenes. But every time, <laughs> every time he was on screen, I was like, yeah, I forgot I really like this actor. Yes, Dean, Dean <laughs> yeah. Norris yeah, from Dean Breaking Norris. Bad is in this, playing essentially Uncle Hank. But like, if I feel like if he had focused on Vanessa Hudgens' character and the way that she is the way that she's kind of struggling, obviously she wants to bring this guy to justice. She's extremely traumatized by it, but she, you know, feels like she can't basically keep herself safe and right. like continue to right. go through with, with being a witness. 
Uh, and she has nowhere to be safe. Like right. nowhere feels safe, even in Cage's house when he tries to like take her in. Like anyway, yeah. my point being her journey to me and her story was the most interesting part of this movie. But right. instead it became like a silence of the lamb situation. Well, right. And the thing that what's frustrating is I think he knows that, that, that he's like, yeah, that's the story I want to tell. But he also knows that there's a really interesting procedural story that he could be telling. Like, I agree that it falls, it fell flat, but the, there's this whole story of like how hard it was. Like this, this case from what I read was like a groundbreaking case in terms of profiling somebody based where you don't have any physical evidence and, but they still used a profile to bring him in. Also, I'm sorry, that scene where they're like searching his house for like 24 hours to get any evidence is like the whole time I was watching it being like, there are so many ways me not me, not a professional filmmaker, not even an amateur filmmaker. I've never directed anything in my life. Uh I was watching that unfold and I was like, oh my God, there's so many ways you can edit and pace this better to make this exciting. But there's nothing inherently exciting about people like about detectives going over someone's house with a fine tooth comb. Well, that, I mean, (laughs) that is... I, that's literally everything in the movie, like, like the, the editing, the editing, and the the. Yeah. Wait, so uh, yeah, so wait, I'm gonna get to that too. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm no, I'm, no, no. I'm like jumping way far ahead of of this. No, but. no, no, because that's really important too. But I, so I, I, in just trying to pin down what's wrong with this movie, yeah. So yes, Vanessa Hudgens' character's story could be its own movie and could be the center of the movie. The procedural aspect of trying to get this shit done could be its own movie. That's almost like. Because he, he he makes the a lot of the police look fucking incompetent and l- make it look l- like they're the own worst enemy of trying to get a case like this solved is just they're just like ah sorry our hands are tied I don't know yeah it sounds like he's probably killing people I don't know, I don't know. circumstantial yeah. sorry whoops <laughs> and like that could be a movie and he tries to kind of make that movie or you could have the movie that's about. Uh, Robert Hansen, which would probably be pretty tasteless and, you know, you would really have to have something to say, but like he kind of tries to do that too. Like he has some, uh, some scenes of him, of John Cusack with girls handcuffed and kind of like being menacing and shitty and like, but he doesn't really commit to being, to really grisly grossing us out and he, but he doesn't commit to like saying anything about it either he's like here it is here's what he did he did this thing which here's what the nick here's what nick cage's character did he did this and this is kind of what happened and now you know the exciting story and like the i read uh, a movie review of this in the observer that said uh the guy had a good line where he's like this movie is not really a movie about these characters it's a movie about the story of these characters like if that makes sense you know what i mean he's like here's the story but there's like you it's said, it's almost like, like he watched a forensic files yes. about it and then like and then extrapolated backwards exactly. to a screenplay from there. Right. And so yeah. the, and so when he, there's a scene of them combing through this guy's house, he just says it's basically just they looked at through his house. <laughs> And it took a while, <laughs> but he makes it. But like they a, found something. But he makes it like a ten-minute sequence, right? And you're like, really? And also, just undercutting. Okay, so here, this is also why, for that reason, it's why the this it's why those scenes of Cusack with the tortured women don't feel earned. Yes, because when you do stuff like that, when you have scenes like that, it's like you need to really. It's hard to frame it in a way where it doesn't feel exploitive and where you don't. Like it's gross in a way where I'm not even, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this so that it doesn't come off crass. Cause like, obviously like this would, this was a real story that yeah. real people went through, right. but the way he presents it to you, you almost don't feel like any kind of connection with right. the victim. Well, he's not, he, yeah. Cause he's doesn't, yeah. And, and, and that's, and it's weird to feel that way, but it's true because again, it's like every scene exists only to be like, then this happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Like, even all the stuff with Vanessa Hudgens' character, who she's, like, saying, like, you, you know, bringing up her, her own past as in an abusive household or these these character beats that should resonate, the way it they're written and the way he presents it, it's all just, like, here is a thing you should know about her. 
And here's a reason why they're not doing it's like he's was had one screenwriting book bookmarked where he's like, how do I bring out character traits in my characters? Have them say them to each other. Well, how do I it's just right. Like, and and that's why the scenes where Vanessa Hudgens and Cage are, you know, you can tell they're put there in the screenplay because they're meant to give you backstory about the characters as well as advance the plot. Now, that would be interesting. In fact, if, you, if it was well-written, you could even make a whole movie just about the relationship between the state trooper and, you know, the woman who was basically their only hope to bring right. down this killer. Right. Um, the only, like, living uh, person who could right. identify him. Right, right. And so, so even that would be an interesting story. You know, even remove Cusack mm -hmm. as an actor yeah. and just have the serial killer as, like, you know, a specter in the script. Yes. Like, and then just have it about her and Cage. No, he... And, but, 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 and, and, you know, but, like, this is what I was saying, is, like, he, there are all these little nuggets of like almost films yeah. that are just kind of all yep. crammed into one hour and 45 minutes well, of a story. Yeah, exactly. And specifically to, to that point, like he drains a lot of the tension out of it by having, there's no mystery about who the killer is. He, he introduces Cusack as the killer pretty much immediately. I think thinking that it'll have the effect of like silence of the lambs, but it doesn't. Because he doesn't do anything interesting with Cusack's character. He's like, he did, he's doing some bad stuff. And you can see Cusack chomping at the bit. Yeah, Cusack wants to trying, yeah, Cusack he, wants to feast on this yes. scenery so bad. He does. And he's just like, he's just choked. Yeah. And it really is, it's hard for me. I'm not a huge Cusack fan. Uh -huh. Like he has done a couple roles where I think he really shines. Yeah. But like he is so much better. And 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 the roots of the character are so much juicier yes. than he was able to to you right. know and, and that comes back to the same like playing it safe thing. Like I, I do think that he part of the reason why he doesn't lean in any direction is because he's very aware that this is a real story with real people, real victims who are alive, and he's trying to be respectful. But the the thing is like he doesn't have anything else to say because his whole the whole reason whether Scott Walker knows this about himself or not. And I'm, I'm just going to tell him what he, but you know, like, <laughs> hey, it, so Scott Walker, it, it, listen up, buddy. like, but the whole reason he wanted to do this was because he read the fucking book and he was like, this is a juicy thing. This is, it's juicy. And the juicy parts to him, I, is this shit happen? It's all the gross stuff. So he, it's like making it, he doesn't know he's making an exploitation movie, but he doesn't have the tools to make anything but an exploitation movie. And he thinks he's being respectful, but he tells the story in a way that it's a story no one needs to hear. He somehow drains it of anything. Like, I, I want to read the book. Yeah, me too. It seems, it's because fascinating. I would get... I would get more information and I would enjoy the experience more just reading it. There's a, this movie at least like says like, here's a fascinating story, but it butchers everything about it. All the procedural stuff makes no real sense. There's even like these weird like leaps, like, okay, so uh, uh, no, before I get into this, here's the other big thing that I think, I don't know if it contributed it. I don't know if it made this film a failure, but it contributed to the kind of failure that this movie is. So he Scott Walker is first time director and his like he he has he tells the story about how his crew members were like amazed at how many setups he was doing in like I would do like 47 setups in the time that it took uh, takes a normal person to do like one or something you know and it even sounded like he would he would have them set up he would ask the actors to do like a run through and he would roll and then Cage or, would be like, okay, let's do it. He's like, no, I got it already. And kind, it, kind of a dick move. <laughs> I, and now, well, Cage, Cage was excited about this because he. Cage is excited <laughs> on any set he's on. Like I am so over, like I am so over taking Cage's enthusiasm for a project as like anything to be taken seriously. Uh, fair. Okay. Fair. But uh, part of what he's, he was excited about is that there basically he was, he didn't have to hit certain marks he didn't have to he compared it and scott walker was very proud of this he he mentions this a lot he says that cage was like oh i haven't worked this way since uh bad lieutenant or leaving las vegas 
Hopefully this movie will be as good as those two. Right. Um, But I, I, there's a, you know, Scott Walker is not Werner Herzog (laughs) and like he not only, it's not that he was getting bad takes from his actors, but he got so much coverage of every single shot that in editing, I think he wanted to include it all. And so it, it jumps around. There's no sense of space or place with the, the way anything's shot. It's, it jumps from angle to angle to angle to close up to just for no reason. And it, it, it's deadening. And then also like beyond doing that, uh, Walker said that he had, the script had 275 scenes. They shot 225 and then lost another 30 in editing, which I don't know enough about what movies. What were all the rest of those scenes? Were they like establishing shots and stuff like that? Yeah, actually, he tells this story. No, because like I, I, I don't know how much more information like you could how many you could pack into this movie. He, he he does he tells a story of like he was like the first scene we shot was John Cusack driving in his car behind a school bus, and he was like, and that's creepy. But he was pulling into the store it's it's the 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 lead in to the scene where he shows up at his uh at his bakery and everyone's like hi bob hi we like you you're normal hi and uh but and he was like oh but uh, i realized or i learned like we don't need this scene of him just driving you can just have him pulling into the parking lot and so i think a lot of it was like that but then, so it was basically just shit because he didn't know how to make a movie. Yeah, he just had extra exactly. shit that he got rid of. And so maybe that for the maybe for the better, but also like I don't know, dude. I'd kind of be down for like a three hour director's, director's cut. cut. Yeah, it's like it's like uh it's like Kubrick status where there's just like long <laughs> tracking shots of them walking nowhere in particular. It would be funny if yeah the rest of it was just really arty. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, um but like. There was at least this one part. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, um, but it seems like they're kind of like, oh, we got to get this guy. We, What are we going to do? It's kind of early on. And then immediately, like, Cage and them are, like, running to the airport. They're like, stop him if he takes off. Yeah, yeah. And, and Cage is literally, like, running after his plane. And I was like, wait a second. What happened? How did they find out where he was? And... And how did they get there so quick? What were they going to do if they stopped him? I thought they didn't have the authorization to, like, none of that was established. And then, okay, so he was flying to dump some evidence with his kid. But then there's another, like, draggy, like, 30 or 40 minutes before they get him. So what was that? It's just, like, shit like that. Well, also the way they set it up so that he was following, they were following the plane. Yeah. Right? And then all of a sudden, like the plane was just in the air and then they were like, Oh shit, we lost him. It's like, you see him get into the plane right? and then he's in the air. Like, and then it, it was just like the, 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 you're right. All the editing and many of the camera shots were just really confusing. They didn't give yeah. you any sense of space or time. It made it seem almost like, uh, there were like scenes missing or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And clearly there were weird, man. And- and not to mention, like, a big part of that scene is they're, like, he's flying his plane into a storm. And they're, like, he's crazy to take off in this storm. And you think that that's going to be a thing. But it doesn't matter. Because then he just goes and he does it. And yeah. he comes back. Yeah, but, Shit like that. You're but like, here's the thing, the f- Dave, what? is that actually happened. Right. So he had to put right. it in so the script. So he had to put it fucking in there. Even though it ruined the flow of the movie. Because he thinks that just stating the fact of that thing, that happening it means it's inherently dramatic. Now I'm getting mad at him. He seems like a nice guy. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't really have a problem with Scott Walker, but just maybe, maybe, you know, he bit off too much. And, uh, I guess, or maybe he learned from his mistakes and that's why it's taking him 10 years to make another movie. Oh, he's Cause he's getting it perfect. That's it, dude. He, his magnum opus is going to come out. It's going to be great. That's the overview. Yeah. What, why is this movie called the frozen ground by Uh, the way? Uh, because it takes place in Alaska. <laughs> it doesn't uh, make any sense. So, so at the end, I mean, this goes without saying if you're listening, but it's fucking spoiler alert for the end right now. Um, <laughs> when Cage finds the map and he has all the X's marked off where he right. buried the bodies, yeah, uh, you know, where they have him in an interrogation. And right. so Cage comes in with the map. Uh, and he's like, these, all these X's are burial sites. The ground might be frozen now, but come summer, I'm going to go up there and, and find them all myself. Uh. 
that that was the only time that was the phrase Mm. of the title of the movie. He should have looked directly at the camera and winked when he said it. Right. Then I would have caught it. Right. Film festival of all the cage movies where someone in this, in the movie says the title of the movie. Uh, Yeah. I'd like to see that super cut. (laughs) (laughs) The Croods was one of them. It was. I noticed that. Welcome to Con Air. (laughs) Okay. I really got to get out of this city. I should be leaving Las Vegas. (laughs) Speaking of Con Air, uh, Cusack and Cage together again. Yeah. Um, This time the roles are flipped. uh, mm -hmm. In Con Air, Cusack was the cop and Cage was the convict. Cage was saying too, like in in Con Air, they didn't really get almost any scenes together. And he he was like, yeah. In this one, they had too many scenes together. (laughs) And apparently there were more that we didn't even see. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, he says like, he's like, we really got a chance to butt heads. But I was like, I was trying to even though think about, they have that interrogation scene, which again, Scott Walker said was like twice as long in his script. Good. Oh and my God. he said that both Cage and Cusack called him the night before and they're like, this is 14 pages and you want us to shoot it in a, in eight hours. It's not going to happen. And he was like, just trust me, just do it. So, and they were both like, we are literally professionals that have been doing this for decades. <laughs> yeah. This is your first movie. Listen to us. Well, anyway, that's sort of the story of this movie. Oh man. Yeah. Do you have, I, 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 I have like weird little things. Well, let's, let's get through them. I don't really have too much no. to say about specifics. I spent a long time reading about the real case, which I'll, okay. I'll, I'll talk about when we're done. Uh, Did you notice movie. that shot? I don't know if it was Vanessa Hudgens, but it was, uh, what, I think it was, um, going to bed early on with just like a quart of milk next to her. Yeah. What was up with that? <laughs> was that? that was very strange. That was a weird choice. Again, another thing where I didn't understand how she ended up there. Yeah. Was that her apartment? I wasn't even sure if it was her because it wasn't. I wasn't sure I who like, she was. I feel like that was one of the rooms. That was one of the hotel rooms in in uh, Fifty Cents, like uh, brothel. Brothel, yeah. It's not like a small thing, like carton of milk, but it's not like a. It, it was like one of those like half and half size. Anyway, yeah, it was it was a weird, and it was, it was also weird. extremely in the middle of the shot. Yeah, she was like, like chilling bright, out watching TV, a and bright red <laughs> carton of milk just in the middle of the frame, and I was like, why would you place that there it, unless you wanted the attention drawn? Right. It, maybe, like, maybe there was a whole other scene regarding the milk that he had to cut. Maybe, maybe it's in the book. She's like, I <laughs> I love milk. I can't get milk enough for ten minutes, and she's like, Yo, we can't. <laughs> This scene with me and the milk is 15 pages long. We can't film this in one day. God, speaking of just, I don't know, scenes that don't serve Vanessa Hudgens well, um, that scene where the strip club owner like takes her in, she's like, well, you got to get off the street. And then she's like nervous about her first dance. She's like, man, my first dance, I, I peed all over a cowboy oh, in the yeah, front right? row. And then she's like, you have, you mean you haven't met Crystal yet? Or says something like that. And then like, basically forces her to smoke crystal meth dude they went from zero to smoking <laughs> meth in like no time and 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 this this is what i was talking about earlier about the about the club scenes God, being I extremely know. like almost care like cartoonishly sleazy and gross <laughs> so, like they were just chilling in a gross ass like dressing room just smoking crack oh, together like you said it's and, it's so operatic in the in the way that someone who's never actually been to a strip club would like imagines it. these people must live yeah. like it's very weird man i i that that made me more uncomfortable than actually going to a sleazy strip club. oh yeah it's not um it wasn't cool remember the part where vanessa hudgens sees a moose yeah. Also based on a real uh, real thing that happened. I believe it, man. Alaska is a wild place, I'm sure. I've yeah. never been, but I've heard stories of friends that have lived there for periods of time, and it seems to be a, a magical yeah. place in, in that sense. That was the most art yeah. part. She She's walking down the street at night, and there's just a moose chilling out in the, the middle of it, and they like stared each other down. Not to harp on this, but it's not shot in a way to make that artistically land as but, anything. But, but dude, honestly, imagine but though, are crazy. imagine how many, um, imagine how many scenes there were Port of Call New Orleans style with just like crazy fisheye lens of the moose <laughs> from the moose's yeah, yeah, like, that, moose's that, perspective. Like, he had to cut a bunch of that out. 
<laughs> it's, just, it's just playing some soul song for like three minutes, the, just staring at it. The imaginary director's cut of this movie is sounding better and better in my head. Yo, to be real, like someone could make this movie, someone could make three versions of this movie from completely different angles that that, this, that would all be a better, be better than this experience movie. than the one we had. Um, yeah. we get another wife character who gets completely, uh, disserved, like, uh, Cage's wife is also like, literally fuck him for making his wife quit her fucking job and pack up the house and get ready to move. And then this case lands on his desk and he's like, Oh, just kidding. We're staying here. Oh, well, it's the ultimate cliche where this is his one last job. He's got two, two, two more weeks on the job, but this case lands on his lap and his wife gets like two scenes in the movie. No, three scenes. And the first scene, she's like, I can't wait for you to be done with this job so we can, uh, I'm, I'm, I've quit my other job. We're going to start a new life. I can't wait for it. The next scene is he takes in uh, Vanessa Hudgens because she has nowhere else to go to try to keep her safe from this guy who is actively hunting her down. And his wife is like, I don't like having her here. It sucks. You have a family. Like, just. Yeah, she says, I remember she says specifically, what do you think this is? A halfway house? Yeah, it's just like, what the fuck? And I was like, yo, this girl is literally being hunted and. and She gets to stay on your couch for a night? Yeah, seriously, man. Seriously. Fuck. She's 17 years old, too, in the movie. Like, anyway. um, And then the last scene (laughs) with her, just with nothing else to, to earn this in between, is she's like, Oh, how's Vanessa Hudgens doing? I hope she's okay. Um, anyway, I've decided that you are a cop and you'll always be a cop and you need to stay and do this job. And he's like, yes, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted the whole time. And she's like, great. I don't need, I'll find, I'll get my job back again. This is great. I love you. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Again, an interesting movie would have been the wife's character. Arc. Sure, sure. But she's you just there's no reason for her. All all three of those scenes don't need to exist. Swap in some of the other like 60 scenes that you right, shot. Right. Right. Stupid. <laughs> like, honestly, I could do with the whole scene where John Cusack uh, is flying in his prop plane singing goodbye horses. To <laughs> Sub that in. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Please. How, how many other better versions of the plot mechanics of this movie <laughs> yeah, can, we like, can, we, can we come up with to cram into this one? Just another note on Vanessa Hudgens. This is like she, she she says specifically that she in the interviews with her that she was like, I'm trying to get away from a Disney image. Yeah, and that she boy. Oh, boy, is she um, This is like I had to look up the time. I didn't even know what she was really from, but I had to look at it. So it was high school musical. Right. 2008. Uh, and Band Slam 2009 and a bunch of similar shit. But then she went hard on, she did Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch in 2011, Spring Breakers Dude. in mm-hmm. 2012. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's great in, and it's it's a great movie. And uh, Machete Kills and This nice. in 2013. Nice. And she's coming back to doing more, uh, you know, she took the like requisite vacation into right. doing like, quote unquote adult yeah. uh, stuff. And now she's kind of back doing other shit, but uh, good for her. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I, yeah, I guess I don't really, I don't have anything else to say. Let's hear about, uh, great about the real Robert Hansen. All right, let me get my computer. Okay. Okay. So this is the part of the podcast where it becomes a true crime podcast. Wow. So no, if anyone, if anyone feels like uh, not listening to a really grisly story about a serial killer, stop. Um, (laughs) or if you're like me and Dave and apparently the rest of the fucking country in 2019 and you're obsessed with true crime, then, uh, let's dig in. We love it. Okay. So, uh, basically, yeah, as you said before, uh, Robert Christian Hansen, uh, was known as the butcher baker is between 71 and 83. He abducted, raped, and murdered at least 17 women with uh, a total of 30 that he abducted, tortured, and raped. Uh, and so, the you know, some of them escaped. Uh, obviously, most notably, Vanessa Hudgens' character. What's her real name? Uh, her real name is uh, Cindy Paulson. Cindy Paulson. Yeah, so let's work backwards from Cindy Paulson's attack because that's kind of when the cops caught on and, uh-huh. and the investigation blew open. So basically, um, June 13th, uh, 1983, um, Cindy Paulson 
ran out onto uh, a road, <laughs> basically like right outside Anchorage. She was handcuffed. Whoa. She was crying. She was barefoot. Texas Chainsaw style. Basically. Um, and then a truck driver picked her up, dropped her off at a motel, and then he called the cops and told them, uh, you know, uh, about her and where she had gone. Wait, so in the movie, isn't she discovered like she's like in handcuffs in like a hotel room? Yeah. She's like, I got to get these off. Right, right. That, that was what that was? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So so the so the police. Um, it would have been nice if that was explained. Yeah. yeah. Well, so and that's where the movie picks up. Right. So then the police uh, on the truck driver's tip uh, show up at the inn. She's. Uh, alone inside a room crying and still handcuffed. Yeah. Uh, so she describes a perpetrator and then basically she describes Hanson. Like she pretty much uh-huh. knows who he is and she gives the cops that description. So they bring he was like a regular right in, in red yeah. light districts and shit. Yeah. 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 So, so they bring Hanson in, obviously he denied everything as he did in the movie, uh, saying that she, that he did hire her. Uh-huh. Um, that she was a sex worker. He did hire her, but then, uh, she tried to extort him. And so he fought back. Wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah, basically. he fought back. Uh, so they let him go. Ugh. They let him go. Uh, he did definitely, um, have priors. He was <laughs> arrested in December, 1960 for burning down the board of education's school bus garage. Whoa. Um, <laughs> What? So he went to jail for that. Um, <laughs> so then, that's like that the, the scene in, in The Simpsons where Bart has the fantasy of destroying the school. Yeah, right. But, uh, uh, um, and then over the next, so then yes, yeah, so so he so he went to jail for three years. He was let out. He his wife at the time divorced him while he was in jail for that. And then through the sixties and early seventies. He was incarcerated a couple more times for theft and petty nonviolent crimes. And then in 1972, um, he was convicted uh, He was convicted of assault, which they talked about right. uh, a little bit in the movie. Uh, again, it was a situation with a sex worker. He went to jail uh, for five years after that. And he got um, treated for bipolar disorder when okay. he was released. They reduced the sentence he got out with time served, uh, which then brings us up to the early 70s where he started uh, basically a string of violence uh, and rape and murder from, they, they, they think from 1971 to 83, like I said before, uh, he kidnapped and tortured up to 30 women uh, and they found out later uh, that they attributed at least 17 murders to him. Up to 30, like, do they, do they know? They know, they know some of them. Uh, the rest of them are uh, women that went missing. They could never find the bodies. Uh, a couple of them were unidentified Jane Doe's that they did find the bodies right. for later on. But basically, the case blew wide open um, because uh, after they brought uh, Cindy Paulson in and then they had let Hanson go a- again after they questioned him for her, Glenn Floth, who was the character that uh, Cage was based on, was an Alaskan state trooper part of a team investigating the discovery of uh, several bodies like around Anchorage, Seward, uh, that area of Alaska. Uh, And they realized that the MO of many of these bodies were the same, um, was the same as Cindy Paulson. So they found an unidentified body, which they dubbed Eklutna Annie because she was found on uh, near Eklutna Road, Uh, but they never actually identified her. Um, and then later that year, the team found the body of Joanna Messina in a gravel pit. Um, and then again, Sherry Morrow in 1982, uh, in a shallow grave near the Nick river. So basically there were like now three bodies accounted for that they, that they thought they could pin on Hanson. So like, yeah, basically they contacted the FBI. Like you said earlier, this was a landmark case, uh, for building a psychological profile for a serial killer from the FBI, uh, based on those three recovered bodies. Wow. And special agent Roy Hazelwood. Right, Cause this is like before serial killing, serial killers were like a buzzword. I mean like that, that, that kind of happened in the seventies. Oh, with I thought like, it was like the eighties. With, with like uh, Gacy and oh, okay. um, you know, that, that whole, so, uh, Ted Bundy, I think mm-hmm. at this point was, had already been captured as well. Uh, so it, it was, it, it was becoming a, a thing in the public consciousness yeah. that there, that there were, that there was such a thing as, as a repeat serial killer. Uh-huh. Um, 
So the FBI agent assigned to the case, Roy Hazelwood, profiled the killer as an experienced hunter with extremely low self-esteem uh, and a history of being rejected by women who was compelled to keep souvenirs of his murder, sure. uh, such as a victim's jewelry, which as we saw in the movie right. with the bracelet, um, this was something that Hansen did was keep jewelry from his victims. Yeah. Yeah. So basically they investigated a couple of other people that they thought might've been it, but they pretty much settled on Hansen early on. Now the problem as we saw in the movie was that all the evidence was circumstantial. They didn't actually have any strong evidence tying Hansen to any of these women. No fingerprints, right, no nothing right. like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so, I mean, and then pretty much it unfolded as we saw in the movie. Uh, they worked really hard to secure a warrant to search Hansen's plane and home. Uh, it took them a long time to get it. And then on October 27th, 1983, they found the jewelry belonging to some of the missing women as well as uh, firearms that match bullet casings found by one of the bodies. They found them in his house? In his house. Uh -huh. They were hidden away in the attic in like a corner hideaway. Uh-huh. And also with this evidence was found the map with the X's marked on it. Oh, that was his map? That was his map. Oh. So that is what led them. Up. Uh, that is basically what led them to the other bodies. And so, you know, initially they had these three women that they figured were him. But then when they found the map uh, and they went to the spots, they found, uh, like I said, uh, a total of... 14 other bodies that were buried yeah, so, uh, wait, on or near these exes, 17 total bodies they found. Yeah. He held out for a while denying the charges and then eventually one by one, he admitted to all the attacks wow. uh, that they had attributed to him. Um, his earliest victims in, in the early seventies um, were all teenagers between the ages of 16 to 19 and they were not sex workers. Unlike the later victims, he was only charged formally with the murder of four of the women, but they attributed a, a, a total of 17 plus the extra that escaped. And then he went to fucking jail for like 460 something years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's dead now. Yeah. And yeah, and he died in prison in uh, 2014. Yeah, so. so after this, I wonder if you ever saw this movie. I hope not. I want to <laughs> give him the fucking satisfaction of seeing Cusack play him. Seeing Cusack play him. Yeah. Well, that's fucked up and crazy. Yeah. Um, I do. Yeah. I would like to read that book because someone should make a good movie about it. Yeah. Someone make a movie about it. Maybe. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I want to say a little bit more about uh, what Cage said about his performance. Yeah, this. please. Let's, um, let's not end on that note. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause um, you said that he, he's pretty bland in it and I, I liked his performance. I think he's underserved by the script and not ha really having anything of consequence it seems to do even though again he is like he's doing a lot he's his character is moving the story forward but it never lands in any sort of emotional way it's just it feels again like it's just like then this happened then this happened in the interviews that i watched he says that like he took this role specifically to do something he describes it as photorealistic which i think is interesting and as opposed to surreal or operatic or abstract as he specifically he's talking about uh ghost Rider, spirit of vengeance yes well, one of his finest abstract <laughs> roles <laughs> and i think it's interesting that he talks about photorealism because it implies the, his thinking of uh other roles as implying a different kind of realism sort of fantasy or surreal surrealism and he even says in one of them he's like I made the conscious choice not to do anything that would take the viewer out of the movie, which again, just speaks to how fucking self-aware he is that nobody gives him any credit for. I love then that he is making that choice in other movies where he says, I'm going to distract you from this movie. I'm going to, the thing that everyone criticizes him for, he's like making it, it's not a, it's not just a tick. It's like a choice. So he's like, I'm going to distract you and call attention to the fact that I'm Nicolas Cage being crazy right now. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess on some level I did realize because I've seen enough yeah, of it. Yeah, by this point. But, but but to me, there always felt like there was an external factor either that was keeping him from drawing attention to himself. Uh -huh. Like I felt like the default is always to be Nicolas Cage right. as much as he can unless specifically he gets, you know, reeled in or pulled in a different direction. But it is interesting that he, 
I guess knew that this that this movie wouldn't be served right. by having Nick Cage doing Nick Cage. And and he also talks about, you know, he's playing a real person and he talked with Glenn. It is Clove. weird that they changed the name for the movie though. It is weird. Just his name. Just the name cuz it's pretty much Glenn's story. Yeah. So like they didn't really change much about that. No. But it's weird and everybody that they else just, keeps their name. Yeah, it's, it's just weird that they changed the yeah. name. Because he's like John something something. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, he he talked with Glenn Flothy like several times and like, and I think he felt the pressure to really like be reverent in his performance. And it works as much as it can within, I mean, as much as nothing, nothing actually works, but he's fine. He's yeah. fine. Yeah. But again, like it could have been a lot of other actors. Like sure. It, it, it could have been a, yeah, it could have been anybody else, you know, honestly. Um, um, and that's a shame. I think that's a. I think you're frittering a good opportunity uh, yeah. of having Cage in your movie by doing it that way. But yeah, that's a good point. I just like that. It just it makes me respect him more. Yeah. And uh, after this film, he took a year off making film. So uh, the Cage that we see in Joe is going to be a refreshed Cage. <laughs> they, they'll, they'll have cleaned the cage out and put, put down a new newspaper. What did he do in that year? I'm going to try and figure it out. I'll yeah. try and research it and yeah. find, find out what he was doing. I wonder, if he has like a, I wonder if he has a GQ road journal. Oh my God. If only into, the, into that, that lost year of cage. He said to, it's weird. So one of the interviews I watched with him, the interviewer was like, oh, he's like you and Cusack and like Johnny Depp and stuff. You all came up at the same time. And, now you're doing this. Like, did you, when you were coming up, did you think it would be like this? This is weird kind of like open <laughs> question, but Cage is like, no, actually I, I didn't. And he specifically, he's like, I didn't know that there would be people with phones that had cameras everywhere you went. I didn't know that tabloid culture and gossip culture and stuff would explode to the size that it is. Yeah. And He's like, I have always just been about creative expression and doing this. And I, I wanted to, I wanted, I want to be an artist basically, but being a public figure is in this, in this way where you're constantly being recorded is like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And, um, that's the first time I've heard him say that. The other thing about his performance now that I'm, I'm remembering that he said he made that choice, the like subtle choice specifically to show people that he could still do it. You know, that's another part of the self-awareness was he was like, everybody I think has forgotten that I can act basically or act in this, in this style and probably didn't pay off because I don't think anybody watched this movie. No, no. But I just think that's an interesting little marker for where his head's at. Yeah, I don't know. I, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, comes. I mean, it looks like most of the next like four or five movies are all pretty dour, like <laughs> direct to DVD. Uh, okay, man. Like, but uh, but we'll see. Yeah, maybe there will be some gems in there. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to Joe. Yes. Yeah. That one is has been recommended to me, and when I tell people I do this podcast. And then they find out how far I am that this is the movie. They're like, oh, have you done Joe yet? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Apparently in this, you know, era of his career, that was like a highlight. Yeah. So we'll right. see. Cool. Well, till next time, um, as always, I don't know, like and subscribe. Uh, give us good reviews on the Apple podcast thing, the app that helps. And tell your friends because that helps even more um, if you know somebody who likes movies and likes people who talk about movies and specifically likes Nicolas Cage. Like where else are you going to get an in-depth discussion of what went right and what went wrong? With this like <laughs> little remembered directive VOD <laughs> 2013 movie. Uh, almost nowhere else. And that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Let people know. Cool. Till next time. Till next time. Thank you.